Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And you guys can find the show at X'sForPodcast.com and X's for Podcast on Twitter. Super excited about our coverage today. We're going to be taking a look at Strange Number 5, as well as a comparison between X-Men 13 and the most recent issue of X-Force, number 30. But before that, I wanted to just kind of do a segment I get to do probably once a year, and I always love getting to talk about this. I am a huge fan of the Omnibus Edition line. I love getting to collect these books in these giant oversized hardcovers. I think they make really beautiful shelf candy, and they look so nice together, especially when the spines have some really good thought put into them. And frequently, you can get a sense for what Marvel's looking to tell with either future stories or sort of a reconceptualization of the past. And I'm always really interested in how they try to do that, especially with the way they collect a lot of the material after the fact. Something that can't be missed is that the Miracle Man omnibus was listed a while before we knew that Miracle Man was returning, which was definitely a good indication that he would be showing up in the pages of regular Marvel continuity at some point. And as a classic Thunderbolts fan, I was over the moon when Thunderbolts appeared on the schedule as an omnibus edition, and then shortly after that, all of these rumors about a Thunderbolts movie started happening. So it is oftentimes really possible to look to the hardcover and omnibus line, which is announced well in advance, much further in advance than a standard solicit due to the nature of the special publication that it is. That kind of gives you an idea of where things may head. I was taking a look at a number of the up upcoming omnibus editions and a number of titles got announced recently and while we don't have exact dates on them yet we have a vague timeline for people who are really excited about sort of other x-men related projects x-men 2099 has been announced for july 2023 and it includes an unbelievable number of extras on top of the 35 issues of x-men 2099 the special oasis and six issues of x nation and i really like seeing that they're also trying to push for some more more complete volumes, especially in this last batch of omnibus editions. It seems like we're looking at maybe some lower page counts, and I'm not expecting the price point to go down. I understand sort of general cost of printing has increased shipping and, you know, corporate interests. So what maybe used to feel like a thousand pages for a hundred dollars and like twelve hundred pages for hundred and twenty-five dollars might be looking a little bit more like a hundred dollars for seven hundred and fifty pages, which isn't my favorite trend, but understanding that a lot of these price points haven't moved that much on this omnibus edition line, I can see why it's happening. Both volumes of Ultimate X-Men that are on the schedule are gonna bring you through about issue 74 on the title, and one's due out late 2022, one is due out in July of 2023. 
It's really exciting to see Marvel come back to the ultimate line. I feel like the ultimate line gave the Marvel Universe a reason to kickstart itself into gear. And you can literally see the creators who established the popular excellence of the Marvel Ultimate line come over to the proper 616 universe with Bendis relaunching for New Avengers and then Millar doing Civil War. You really get a sense of how those creators then brought that energy over here. So seeing Marvel acknowledge the Ultimate line, which, you know, ran 15 years and never really seems quite dead, is something that I don't know tells us anything about the future of Marvel. But we do know that a number of the 2099 characters have been popping up in the work of Steve Orlando. And with Steve Orlando working on Marauders right now, and we're seeing his use of characters from 2099 there already, check the annual. It's very likely that that's to try and get these characters back into popular circulation. There's also a really exciting omnibus that I don't think has too much meaning for the direction of where anything's going, but the X-23 Wolverine Laura Kinney omnibus that's coming out, it does end before she is Wolverine, and it has such a great selection of her stories. Admittedly, it's missing all of the new X-Men stuff, which is not my favorite era of Laura or of new X-Men for that matter, but it gives me hope that maybe at some point we'll be lucky enough to get a new X-Men omnibus edition with all of the great Academy X stuff I love. I think that Laura is just a character that the company thinks is worth investing in. So when May 2023 rolls around, you can pick up X-23 1 through 6, Target X 1 through 6, X-23 number 1, the series that launched after that, that ran 21 issues, the Captain Universe one-shot, all of the relevant issues of crossovers like the two parts of Doc and Dark Wolverine, To Serve and Protect number 2, Wolverine Road to Hell number 1, and all new Wolverine Saga. So that's a really complete addition if you're looking to kind of get a sense of who she was and like let's be honest not everybody loves reading digital I know I'm a big digital person and I think reading digital is like super exciting anywhere I am I can just dial into a comic but that's not how everybody prefers to read some people really like the tangible tactile experience of flipping a page holding a book and I think this is a really great way to get a huge selection of Wolverine's early career before she really found her footing claw and all I think one of the biggest omnibus lines that Marvel has to offer is definitely the Uncanny X-Men omnibus editions. Now, the X-Men proper, like the first volume, 1 through 66, is contained in two omnibus editions, which were out of print for a really long time, and you were seeing secondary market sale prices of like 360, 400, 500. I saw one time it go for like 850 or something insane like that. I don't know why anybody would fucking pay that much for an omnibus edition when we know these things come back into publication, but I understand understand that sometimes it seems like it's never going to come back into publication. And X-Men Volumes 1 and 2 spent a really long time out of publication, but they did finally come back in in 2022. So it's really great to see those early adventures by some of the most Silver Age classic Marvel creators there are. Now, the Uncanny X-Men line picks up with Giant Size X-Men as you would probably expect it would. I find some really interesting decisions being put into this line. I have long felt that the decision to start moving to crossover based presentations of stories like the recently released Inferno, Inferno Prologue, Fall of the Mutants, Mutant Massacre, these really followed in the footsteps of the Age of Apocalypse complete epic Omnibuy editions and I thought it was a really interesting move. I thought it was a great way to see books like X-Factor and New Mutants where there might not have always been the same incredible drive to collect all of this the way there is now for some 
some of these characters, especially thanks to the Krakoan Age giving room for so many forgotten mutants to really shine. So I thought that was a really interesting decision. And then I was perhaps a little surprised when they announced Uncanny X-Men Volume 4, which came in the shortest by far since Volume 1. It runs the same number of pages as Volume 1, which Volume 1 was first released in May of 2006, and it's issues 94 to 131 and annual number 3 alongside Giant Size number 1. And it would literally be eight years before the first printing of Volume 2, which features a much greater number of back issues, but still a really strong core of 132 to 153 alongside a lot of Phoenix-centric backups and the classic Marvel fanfare 1 through 4. So then when Volume 3 followed two years later with 154 to 175 and another strong smattering of back matter, everything was cool. It's annual 6 through 7, Marvel graphic novel, God Loves Man Kills, the original presentation, Wolverine 1 through 4, Magic 1 through 4, and the often forgot X-Men special edition. And that volume ran over a thousand pages. So the first one was 850, the second one's just over 900, this one's like 1050. Volume 4 came in at 848 pages, the same length as the first one, and it featured 176 to 193, which not coming for any era of the classic Uncanny, but that's, I don't think the strongest era by individual issue, per se, and it has the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries, the X-Men Alpha Flight miniseries, so it, Volume 5, which was just announced for June 2023, contains issues 194 to 209, which lines up right with when the Mutant Massacre volume comes in, but I feel like perhaps they kind of stretched for the back matter here. New Mutants Special Edition is being reprinted for kind of like, I don't know, it, this is just one of those things that gets printed a lot, and I don't know what else they really could have included, but they did include Nightcrawler 1 through 4 and Longshot 1 through 6, as well as Marvel Fanfare 33. It's just of note that Nightcrawler 1 through 4 is by Dave Cockrum, and while I think it is a gift like none other to include Longshot, which is such a terrific example of kind of corporate synergy, where the character was created by Anne Nascenti and Art Adams, and then found themselves moving over to the pages of X-Men, thanks to Anne Nascenti's involvement with the X-Office and Chris Claremont's love of seeing a character and deciding to use it. So, you know, I don't know why this feels like it's possibly going to be kind of a shorter volume, but I have some concerns about the page count and the possible price point. It also doesn't really point to anything really about the X-Men coming back into Vogue per se. It doesn't really give me an idea like, oh, Thunderbolts or anything, but it's definitely of note that the Nightcrawler and Longshot miniseries are being included. And I'm pretty excited about that because they are two of my favorites from the 80s. So one of the reasons I'm not covering everything ever in terms of X-Men Omnibus, and I'm just looking at the forward momentum on it, is because way back in April of 2020, I covered the existing Omnibus editions in episode 111 of this show. And then in May of 2021, I did an all Louise Simonson collecting Omnibus look. So it just feels kind of right that here in 2022... One of those future volumes I have been asking for since that first episode. It's coming out now. The Extreme X-Men by Chris Claremont Omnibus is slated for later this year. It's supposed to have come out like 10 times, but, you know, paper shortages, shipping problems. These things really do affect, you know, we need Ikea bed slats a whole lot more than we need printed comics. So, you know, I understand that some of this stuff had to wait. And one of the things that I just really want to really compliment is that the Extreme X-Men by Chris Claremont number one Omnibus really really hits everything I would have wanted it to involve. It has un 
Uncanny 389, X-Men 109, Extreme X-Men 1 through 24, which seems a little bit further than I would have gone with the first volume, considering there's only 46. It also has the annual. It has Extreme X-Men Savage Land 1 through 4, Expose 1 through 2, and material from Unlimited 36. That's probably going to leave issues 25 through 46, as well as Mechanics for the second volume. Pretty excited about that. One of the things that I'm most grateful for is that this really does mean there is a really terrifically complete look at everything from the revolution on. Claremont's revolution started in X-Men 100 and matching Uncanny X-Men 381. And between the X-Men Revolution by Chris Claremont, Omnibus, the X-Men Eve of Destruction, original hardcover, which really functions as an omnibus in so many ways, and now leading into this extreme, which matches along new X-Men, if we can just get an Uncanny by Joe Casey, we'll really have a complete look. I'm not exactly clamoring for a matching Chuck Austin era set Uncanny Omnibus, but there is some part of me that understands that this is why the Omnibus engine works the way it does, because they know that I'm then sort of drawn and compelled to buy these things, that I'm going to say, you know what, okay, I have everything else from that era, it would just make sense to complete my collection and grab the matching Joe Casey and I guess the Chuck Austin volume. It really is up to the individual collector if you're a completionist or if you're somebody who would pass on those volumes. I know I've really tried to move away from single issue collecting and I'm much more of a digital collector these days just by virtue of space. Over the years I've amassed so many comics and it's just hard to make room for new ones. So there are things that I'm really excited to pick up in Omnibus Edition for a lot of reasons. For instance, I know that I didn't pick up a lot of the King in Black crossover event and I was not the world's biggest fan of the event itself. I really liked some of the X-Men involvement. The Daredevil issues were probably some of the weaker issues of the Zadarsky run, but he really managed to make it feel special. I enjoy a number of the appearances in things like Sword 2 through 4. The cable stuff was really fascinating, but I ultimately did not pick up as many of those issues as I could have. I'm likely to grab the King in Black Omnibus because of the number of special characters that appear in it or these special issues like the King in Black Marauders. You know, that'll probably be in a Marauders omnibus if they do it, but there's just something that is kind of alluring about picking up this edition that helps me see things that I might have skipped out on the first time, like when I got the War of Realms omnibus and I found out about that amazing journey into mystery miniseries. And speaking of things that might make it a little bit easier to collect things, there's books that I'm okay with retiring and getting rid of, and there's places that there have been some really thoughtful revisions to the line. I bought the Avengers vs. X-Men original hardcover when it came out, specifically because I was so excited to see the attempt to collect the infinity issues, the sort of click and it moves bit by bit panel work that was the original idea for Marvel Online Comics, very much following in line with the Mark Wade thrill bent model for books like Insufferable. And, you know, now we have much more the infinite scroll method. And I think that's a very attractive way to read these comics. But early on, when Marvel was doing that very, you know, framework, almost a digital comic, but not, I was really interested in seeing how it would get collected. So I grabbed the hardcover because they made a lot of like, oh, this will be the only way to get that. And now they're releasing an Avengers vs. X-Men omnibus. And it's particularly complete, especially compared to the hardcover, which contained zero through 12 plus a couple of the online specials. I think it's like one, six, and 10. And then it had verses one through six. Now it's also going to contain Avengers Academy 29 through 33, Secret Avengers 26 through 28, which is some good Captain Britain stuff, Avengers. 
Avengers 25 through 30, New Avengers 24 through 30, X-Men Legacy 266 through 270, Wolverine of the X-Men 9 through 16 and 18, AVX Consequences 1 through 5, Uncanny X-Men 11 through 20. So, see, that's where I'm in kind of a bind. I would normally not want to collect Avengers vs. X-Men, but I don't know that I'm guaranteed to get a Kieran Gillen Uncanny X-Men Omnibus. I think it's more likely I would get like a Regenesis Omnibus or maybe a Schism Omnibus. And you wouldn't necessarily be able to get all of these books in their own native title. That's something that's long plagued event titles, especially. When I take a look at the content of War of Kings, there's so much in there that I probably would never buy the Omnibus edition for. But when I see it's Uncanny X-Men 475 to 486, do I think I'm getting an Ed Brubaker Omnibus edition for Uncanny X-Men? I don't know. His X-Men kind of truncates into the Matt Fraction X-Men. Do I think I'm getting a Matt Fraction Uncanny X-Men Omnibus anytime soon? I don't know. I never would have thought that I was going to get a Matt Fraction Thor Omnibus, but I think think all of the use of Don Blake in the Donny Cates run, I think maybe has stirred up some interest in the use of Don Blake in the Matt Fraction run. But then again, the way I started this whole thing was think about how far in advance this engine is running. So could it have been that much synergy? Perhaps. I'm really excited to see how that's going to go. Now, one of the most sort of maligned (laughs) omnibus lines at Marvel is Wolverine. And not because Marvel doesn't love Wolverine. If anything, Marvel loves Wolverine a little too much and they released the first volume of the Wolverine Omnibus line way back in April of 2009 and it has such a weird grouping it's got Marvel Comics Presents 1 through 10 and Wolverine 1 through 10 which are the matching stories that go together by Claremont from 88 where that whole thing was happening and Wolverine was getting his own thing but then it also has Weapon X by Barry Windsor Smith from Marvel Comics Presents 72 through 84 and it has some relevant Incredible Hulk appearances like 180 and 180 the first appearances of Wolverine, plus 340, a pretty famous cover where he returned to the title. It's got Marvel Treasury Edition 26, Best of Marvel Comics. It's got Wolverine 1 through 4, which has been printed to death in the Marvel Omnibus line at this point. Kitty Pride and Wolverine 1 through 6 yet again. Captain America Annual 8, Spider-Man vs. Wolverine 1, which is such a famous issue and it's coming up a lot out of nowhere all of a sudden. Marvel Age Annual number 4, and Punisher War Journal 6 through 7. Now this would be reprinted over a decade later, again in April of 2020, where it would be the same interior contents, but it would kick off a line that would continue in 2021 with the second volume, which features still kind of an unusual grouping, Wolverine 11 through 30, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown 1 through 4, Wolverine Nick Fury Scorpio Connection, Wolverine the Jungle Adventure, Wolverine Bloodlust, and material from Marvel Comics Presents 38 through 71. Now, in 2022, we're going to get Volume 3, which is an unbelievable 1,264 pages. It beats the previous volume by about 20 pages, and it is a big boy. We've got 31 through 59 of the Wolverine regular title. We have Marvel Graphic Novel 67, Wolverine, Bloody Choices. We have the, I just don't understand why it's even here, but we have Wolverine, Reign of Terror. Fine, it's it's fine. I just don't know why it's here, though. You know what I mean? Uh, Ghost Rider, Wolverine, Punisher, Hearts of Darkness. A reprinting of the material from the Jim Lee Volume 2, X-Men 4 through 7, and I get that it's the Omega Red story, so it's pretty significant to 
to who Logan is and how that fits into the bigger view of his character now. And especially with Omega Red being such a big deal in the proper X-Books on Krakoa, I do get the decision to lean into reprinting that again. But it's definitely hard not to notice that it's one of those eras that sees reprinting maybe a little bit more frequently than is attractive. So I really do love these omnibus editions and I think it really is so interesting how you can also see the synergy like the Daredevil omnibus edition came out a number of years ago and now volume two is coming out right in time for Born Again. So sometimes they're just sort of sitting on these volumes and waiting for a really key moment to release them. There's also going to be a release of X-Factor volume two. Now the first X-Factor volume was pretty much the complete X-Factor classic by Peter David and it ran a little bit after that. Now this one picks up over a decade later where Peter David resumed the title with Madrox 1 through 5, X-Factor 1 through 39 with the exception of the irrelevant backup stories that belong to a crossover, X-Factor the Quick and the Dead one-shot, X-Factor special Layla Miller, and the relevant She-Hulk issue for the crossover that's going to be out in November. And I think with a number of those characters really seeing a high point, especially with Siren and Monet being featured in the terrific Steve Fox secret X-Men stuff that just dropped, I'm really excited to hope that some of these are an indication of some characters we may see in the upcoming couple of months. It would be really exciting if we could sort of dial into that a little bit closer. Now, I know that especially with the reprint of the Captain Britain omnibus to include all of the Panini Press hardcover material like Birth of a Legend and Siege of Camelot into one much larger volume, along with the eventual print of the always delayed Knights of Pendragon dragon and the mistech stuff we're seeing a lot of the marvel uk stuff get reprinted over here especially with miracle man that tells me that we should be looking a bit toward the marvel uk back matter to be mined it's also of note that the phoenix omnibus had been the dark phoenix omnibus it got reprinted in june of this year now we're going to see the reprint of avx come out in a few months you know there's so much phoenix stuff going on right now and i think if we had been looking a little bit more at the hardcovers and the release date of the hardcovers, we would have seen that it would have been very likely that there would be a Phoenix one-shot coming out right about now, something very Phoenix-heavy that ties into these hardcovers that, you know, they don't cost a lot for Marvel to make at the time in terms of new production. It's really about going in and mastering old pages, which have, many of which have already been scanned and remastered for online purposes. So these volumes are, I don't want to say printing money, but they are something that Marvel does focus on and you can see it when they rush out two volumes of New Mutants and Excalibur each. When they see that the iron is hot and they have the ability to get the material out, you definitely see them do it. I just want to put on record that I am so grateful that Marvel eventually went back and reprinted the Wolverine and the X-Men omnibus. I had waited so long on that one and I just accidentally missed out on it the first time and it was just going for so fucking much and Blake, uh, awesome guy Blake's buzz, you know, everybody knows Blake's buzz now, guy's the best. And Blake and I used to joke about how like that and the Ed Brubaker Daredevil Volume 2 were like my holy grail books and I've managed to get them both thanks to reprints, not crazy aftermarket prices and one of the things I like about that is you know you never know with aftermarket prices if your 
supporting a bookshop or if you're supporting somebody who like hoarded a bunch of books from a bookshop and is now making crazy money on them. I like knowing that when I order my omnibus edition, it's at least going to the shop that I'm ordering it from and that it's not going to some crazy secondary market. So that's always nice. I hope that everybody, you know, feels a little bit like they can collect these titles in some way (laughs) that they don't feel too sort of cut off from the nature of how confusing voluming and, you know, if you're like, oh, Uncanny X-Men volume two. Okay, X-Men volume two. If you don't know the difference, because maybe to some people, old art looks old, you know, and then these new covers that they do, these beautiful covers, it makes knowing what's inside difficult and many shops keep their books shrink wrapped so you can't even browse through it. I do get that this can be such a confusing thing. And so one of the things that we're hoping to get back to here on Excess for Podcast is a focus on having a few more segments like this each month where we talk a little bit about questions we're seeing or that we're getting through DMs uh, because our audience is so incredible and the amount of reaching out to us that you guys have been doing lately is unfucking real and the chance I had to talk with so many people that knew the show and have listened to the show and knew people's names from the show or it was incredible at FlameCon how many people were just like oh my god X is for podcast and like I was so thrilled to be part of that moment and have been lucky enough to sort of in my own fashion curate it and I'm just so grateful and I hope we can do more of these segments each month since you know people have been asking for them and I hope this helped you guys out sorting through your omnibuys and uh, it helped you get a little omnibusy but speaking of getting omnibusy let's take a look at today's coverage I am so excited that the strange team had such an amazing time with this issue I know that at the end of issue four there was a you know what if things don't turn around we might need to say we're done sort of vibe so the fact that with this issue everybody's like can't wait for six let's do it it's an ongoing is so exciting for me and after that we have a bit of coverage that takes two different books that we've maybe had a few more criticisms of and we took a look at them holistically and asked ourselves does this represent the x line is something missing what doesn't make x-men by jerry duggan sync up with x-force 30 the way that maybe we feel immortal x-men has synced up with the x line and really excites us and i found the answer really interesting and it helped us to understand how much of it is framing on a book how much of it is perception of how the book flows together and how if we were reading these in trades we would very likely have a very different experience than we have critically examining each book each month to try and get to the heart of things but that's just the tip of the iceberg in verse x which is going to be our third segment so i hope you all enjoy the rest of this episode don't forget we love making this show for you three times a week every week that's mc2 mondays where we're moving into some crazy not mc2 stuff but it's all really kind of spider girl and it's eventually going to get kind of spider big hang in there wednesdays and fridays we're still taking a look at those modern marvel books you love and we're still doing some chrono skimming back into the back catalog like our coverage of avengers which is still going strong we will be caught up well before the end of the line in avengers assemble ready for whatever marvel brings our way next in judgment day you can always check the show out at xsforpodcast.com and xsforpodcast on twitter as for me you can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n you can find my original work over at kidriotcomics.com and in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology. I've loved doing the signings for that. Getting to sign it at FlameCon was amazing. Selling out of it was crazy. And we actually have a number of incredible X-Men prints drawn by comic artist Taryn and Gleema. Really phenomenal prints of Jean in her many forms and Logan. And uh, it's so exciting. We sold out of a bunch of those. So definitely hit us up on Twitter if you're interested in those prints. We would love to get them out to you. But for now, enjoy these last two segments. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan 
gateways open. Don't forget, we're judging everybody. Now all fall long, and we'll see ya. Hello and welcome back to Access for Podcast. Today we are here to talk about Strange Number 5. My name is Steve, my pronouns are they and them, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Red. Come find me on Twitter and Instagram. I would love to have some conversations. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online on Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. I hope y'all have survived this experience. Unlike apparently Umar's bra in most of this <laughs> issue. Tits akimbo. So we're talking about Strange Number 5, written by Jed McKay, penciled by Marcelo Ferreira, inked by Roberto Poggi, colored by Hava Tatalia, and lettered by Corey Pettit. So I have been pretty strongly critical of the artwork on the series, particularly the inks so far. And I think in this issue, I finally got used to it or it got better. I, I, I do think that the pencils and the inks looked a lot more consistent throughout this in terms of like figures, faces expressions. It was a little bit more inventive. It tried a little bit more different things. I think the inking finally like caught the light where I need it to be to understand perspective. But this very first page when we open up, Umar's tit, man. It is like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is one of the most distracting things I've ever seen. I could not read the rest of the page. The shadows, the inking in the shadows, the outline of it, all make it look completely disembodied from her chest. Like it is somehow wrapped in fabric and laying on top of her chest separately from the rest of her body. And it was it was immensely distracting. See, and that that's the boob shot that bothers you, but mine is, is later on in the book. I was like going to say, like, I have a lot of boob complaints in this issue. <laughs> but I will admit, overall, yes, the, the art is starting starting to find its footing and I'm starting to get used to it. So like it is solidifying its style. Yeah. I'm stuck on the, the weird boob physics in this book. So like, you know, we've got that Umar shot where she's got the disembodied breast and then you go like two pages later and she's sitting there drinking her wine with like having maybe gotten an implant in between panels. <laughs> you go to the next page here and you've got Clea seductively sitting in a chair in Mr. Knight's office and the like, and she's wearing some like I can only describe them as Madonna level cone type. They are bra. perky to an oh, level because yeah. they're literally pointing upward. Yeah. Yeah. We're at a point in 2022 where you don't have to be realistic, but you do have to know how anatomy works. We're not going back to the Liefeld era. I agree. <laughs> this issue does improve on yes. The- oh, yes. a yeah. lot of the different body shapes are interesting, at least for the men. There's some really <laughs> inventive and cool creative stuff done with Moon Knight's cape. I always love when Moon Knight's cape forms into a moon and there's a really great example of that later in the issue that looks stunning. And, you know, there's there's a lot to love here. The story picks up in a way that I really, really yes. enjoyed and like, this is my favorite issue of the series so far. But as Nathan and I were talking before recording, the series would be better if this issue was like issue number two or yeah. maybe number three. Oh, yeah. The pacing feels so off. Like, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. I think if this had come in a little bit earlier, it would have helped with the pacing and it would have fit. It really would have 
fit. Yeah, it feels like nothing yeah. has happened for the last four, three or four issues, and suddenly we're in the story and it's moving and things are going somewhere. And I, I love a book that gives you time and space to fill out character, but honestly, it does not feel like there was enough to fill the last three issues to to make it worthwhile, at least buying it, you know, as it's coming out. So I'm, I'm glad I stuck around as long as I did because the series is really picking up and I, I'm loving the writing and I'm getting much more into the art and it's coming together and it's clicking, but mm -hmm. it feels like it should have been here four issues ago. It does feel like it's writing for the trade, right? So that we can get that yeah. first five issues of setup. When we do jump into the action, which is pretty much immediately, Umar is literally like sanguimancing blood into a, you know, into a wine glass. <laughs> Like, oh, this is a much better... It's like, damn it, woman, I didn't know you were a vampire. What the hell? In the last issue, she was complaining about the vintage of the wine. Villain arc completed in one panel. She's awful. She's horrible. Like, I, in a way, love her. In, in a lot of ways, the last three issues had just been Umar coming to dinner over over a three-issue arc. That would have no. been... I think that would have been very entertaining. The part where she says, as always, Wong's food is mediocre. <laughs> pedestrian. She called it pedestrian. Yes. You, you have never dined here before. Ma'am, <laughs> I was offended for Wong. I'm like, how dare you call that man's food pedestrian? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like little moments in this issue that were like the spark of what I love about other Jed McKay titles like Black Cat and Moon Knight. The little bit about just coming to beat up Eight Ball. Like, he's like, I don't really have to do anything. I just got to put the fear to Eight Ball because he's getting a little too comfortable lately. All I can think is answer unlikely. <laughs> like, <laughs> You're sitting there playing the lotto and just from nowhere, Moon Knight pops in your window. I would shit myself. Just nope, nope, nope. Life of crime, nope. Yeah, no, that's so cool, like, dropping in on 8-Ball like that. And the story I really have loved, right? Like, I, it's gotten a lot better in these last few issues. I, I think this could have been a more condensed story. Seeing Moon Knight was fun, and Jed always writes Moon Knight amazingly. Anytime I see Moon Knight now outside of Moon Knight comics, I always miss those beautiful Rochelle Rosenberg colors. Yeah, yeah, I can sometimes those. It's not, it doesn't have the shine and the mysticism that, like, glints off of it. And it's weird to say that about a, a Doctor Strange book, you know? It's, I mean, it's a Clea book, but it's strange. I just felt for a long time that this series did not have the kind of color work that I kind of like expect from a strange book where it's going to be bright and kind of mystical and interesting looking. I, this issue does have a little bit more of that like nighttime spooky feel to it and the neon lighting it, do, it does kind of feel like Rosenberg's uh, work a little bit and it does recapture some of that pale green that glints off Moon Knight. I think it does the work to get there but in general this series has not like necessarily wowed me with the, the color work other than you know some glowing stuff I owe you two favors. I'm like, oh, I laughed. I really did laugh at that. What? You killed my brother? Great. It's like, oh my God. I think these little uh, undead spirits look really cool. I think a lot of the zombie and monster work looks really excellent. The inking is really on par with what I expect from like a good horror comic. And like, you know, Mar looks great. I was interested in talking about how they finally explained why the heroes and villains are coming back the way they do. There was like a panel in there where I was like, yes, this is a Jed McKay comic. This is what I'm looking for. 
It was when they were like, oh, the, the ghosts band together in their hundreds, their nameless selves to fill out this archetypal identity of a symbol, you know, like a big, bright, easy to understand identity. And I, th- I felt like that was such an interesting commentary, like if, if not a very deep one necessarily, but an interesting commentary on like the public identification on mass with superheroes in media. And I loved that concept. And like when they said it, I'm like, that makes sense because heroes and villains touch a lot of lives, especially when they're like mystical and they, they deal with other planar realms and whatnot. They're touching a lot of lives. So after a while, like the myth, the lore, the idea of the hero spreads and it becomes easier to, to grab onto that way back because they become an ideal or a concept versus a solid constructed self-identity. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That makes great sense and I love it. And I think that was a really good addition. I think that helped shore up a couple of really big questions that I had had for like the last several issues. Like, okay, so why are they coming back? How are they coming back? Like somebody throw me a bone as to what is going on here because it doesn't make sense with the current knowledge that I have of, you know, strange and spooky Marvel comic books, especially, you know, from Jed McKay. But yeah, like when 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 it was finally explained, I'm like, oh my God, this makes more sense. That's kind of why you're right when you say it should have been an earlier issue. I think it would have made a better issue because it would have planted that ideal, that knowledge sooner. So when these heroes and villains do start coming back, you're like, oh shit, oh, okay, shit's going down in, in hell or this extra plater dimension. Somebody big is coming in. Something is is definitely pulling strings and that's what I need to pay attention to. Yeah, and following that immediately, we get that great panel of the Harvest Men saying, that many souls bound together create a powerful being. That many fragmented minds bound together create one that is dangerously insane. And I was like, yes, that is ex-Twitter. The Harvest Men being absent delayed our explanation of what was actually going on and having to wait until the fifth issue to get that explanation for me it was kind of frustrating oh same there was a lot of really good character moment, you know, between Wong and Clea or Clea and Umar, but we didn't really get a feel for why well, this black market was so important to Clea other than it just being her yeah. territory and a territorial possession of these people is never going to be as compelling as an emotional connection. And it just feels like political chess going on in the background where we could have gotten more, more fun moments between characters that reveal a little bit more about who they are. And I think we've gotten to know a little bit more about who Clea is, but who Clea is to me at this point is somebody who believes in domination and a hierarchy of power and protecting the people within her realm, you know, and it just, it doesn't, that's not a person that I would like in, in person, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's a little difficult. It's not somebody I would like if it was Dr. Strange either, really, you know, I probably will continue since this was such a yeah. upliftingly good issue. Despite all my criticisms early on in the episode, this is like a really good issue. It's very strong and it w- makes me want to read more, but but I do need a little bit more from Clea if I'm going to connect with the character. Oh, definitely agree. Like, with how nuanced Jed has made Felicia Hardy, like the black cat, I'm sure we're going to get there with Clea. And, you know, he was given a, lot, a little bit more to work with with black cat. At least she was always a little bit more complex. And Clea as a character, unfortunately, has mainly been written through the guise of 
uh, men who just see her as an object to orbit around Stephen Strange. Right. She's pretty, she's sweet, she's powerful, but in a way that is not as powerful always as Doctor Strange. She is more powerful than Doctor Strange, but she's often written as somebody who like could not necessarily ha- handle him if it came down to it. And so it is nice that Jed is taking this character into unexplored territory. This is yeah. a new Clea. It just happens to not be one that, while it, while it gives her power and agency for herself, it doesn't give her motivations that necessarily make me feel compelled to support her. She is who she is, but only in relation to the men who dictate who she is in their life. So like, I need a Clea who is for Clea and about Clea because she is self-determining, which she's always been in, in, well, not always been, but she's been hinted at being just her own person in her own thing for, you know, ever. But like every time we see her, she's in relation to, to Stephen Strange. How do you, how do you all feel about the fact that this series gives Clea a strong motivation in that she would do anything to get her husband back from the dead and she loves him very much and this is her driving motivation. How do you feel about that being yet another way in which Clea's entire motivation and drive is tied to Doctor Strange? I'm I'm honestly not loving that part of it. Like I can understand wanting your husband back, but when it's the same line over I want my husband back. Bitch, why? We have barely seen you. We have barely really gotten to know you or your motivations other than you love your husband okay why why do you love your husband i want to know why she loves dr strange so much like i, I want to see what she sees you know yeah yeah absolutely and it's like it's not that oh she has to have you know like oh i want to save the world or oh you know my driving force has become a warlord da, da, da. No, no, no i need to know who she is like i need stephen strange back i didn't get enough time with him yes we were married but we were always pulled in two different directions and I never got to really express the depth of my love to him and I'm not ready to let go. Maybe Jed's exploring the stages of grief. You had Clea just suddenly jump out there and and not mention Stephen Strange for the longest time. I think that it wouldn't be true to the character that she was so he's got to take her on a journey but like I'm just impatient for the journey to get there. I get that she wants Stephen back. I get it but I mean like like we said it's pretty much her one main focus. I don't know how this will pivot her motivation in the series. I would like to think that her finding out that Stephen Strange is alive and well will allow her to focus on the blasphemy cartel and whatever's going on yeah. with them and her warlordship of Manhattan without having to constantly focus on Stephen. But I know that he will be in the background there because he's still not free. But if he was freed, then this book would likely not be hers anymore. So I think this is like a compromise middle ground here where the story can continue on to something else for a little while with the reminder that eventually this part needs to happen and then probably the series will end. It's going to be interesting to see too like what this period for Stephen Strange when he eventually comes back because he's you know going to have to uh, they always do but like when he eventually comes back to being Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme you know how this era will have affected him. This book could ask a lot of questions about grief and what it means in a universe where you can't be sure that death is death and when you're dealing with being like you know almost like what happened with siren when banshee died you know where she like was like no wait we're superheroes we can come back he's gonna come back like i'm not even she was right it's a long game (laughs) it's funny how how she's was dealing with banshee's death is essentially just like dick grayson in dark crisis on infinite earths right now but for seven issues something i i always enjoy from jed and something that i think jed mckay is extremely good at and turning into like comic book narrative gold is reading really obscure comics 
and pulling really obscure characters from it. So I did want to point out that this particular issue pulls a location and a character, Dr. Payne at Innsmouth Hills Sanitarium. These characters are, have only appeared in like Venom the Hunger from 1996 by Len Kaminsky and like maybe one previous appearance for Dr. Payne. But it's very clear that Chen is always just reading these like really obscure comics like Dark Reign Zodiac and Venom the Hunger and then deciding that these characters absolutely need to come back as a one-off joke. And I love that and I hope it continues because I, I think it's one of Jed's most fun quirks as a writer. That'd be funny if he's just like reading the comics when they come out and going, someday I'm going to do something with this. <laughs> just, it kind of helps tie old character plots either shut or or at least brings us some awareness that these characters have existed before and they're not just oh yeah this is just the villain of the week no no this villain's been around for a good long time they just didn't get a whole lot of play and people may have forgotten well i'm gonna remind you in this case they've done nothing since <laughs> right <laughs> but i love it i love it i love that uh, we're getting something different it's not just the same you know hey welcome to the villain of the week scenario yet again it makes so much more sense because this guy is running around in the world i love that these like forgotten villains they're still there whether or not we've forgotten about them and it makes the marvel universe feel so much more of like a real place i gotta give a shout out to the lettering in this issue like obviously corp teed is like amazing overall but like just like the use of the effects and you know the different colors for you know different various magical beings when clea's in her fall teen form you know like the color of that font is beautiful Beautiful. Like yeah. I, it's really, really inventive lettering. This freak out for uh, her in her fall team form when she gets really mad looks better than it has in any previous issue. I, I love this design for it. It's just, it's got the whole fire on. It's not doing the silvery white kind of in between ghost thing. She looks genuinely menacing, and the inking on her face does not have the like very early Cockrum Nightcrawler look that it had yeah. previously. Which I, I think this is an improvement over that. It looks cool. It looks very menacing. Mm -hmm. I love that Clea is just going around being like. Like, hey, can I menace your dudes? And Moon Knight's like, no, I'm just getting warmed up. I really like beating up these guys alone. <laughs> Parkour! CrossFit! <laughs> like, it's cool if you watch, but I, I kind of want to do this myself. And I love the fact that we finally got a new spell. Oh, yeah. The Burning Compass of Sidrion. Yeah, like, a, oh. as far as I know, a new spell. And we got the Spines of Salgatha, too. The spines of Salgatha. Yeah, that was, like, awesome. And I, I love that they look like what they're supposed to be, which is basically low-level cantrips. Yes. I'm so, like, nice. Yeah, they really do. That is a nice effect. The magic is really improving in terms of like the writing on it and the pencils on it and everything i would like to see more than pink beams of light i'm i'm so deathly tired of that in the mcu but mm. also in like late marvel comics so i like nothing against if that's like her power signature but i would love to see like a little bit more spice to the colors on these spells give me some reds give me some golds a little bit more burn Put a rainbow in there Right, because she's still using a cross between Dark Dimension and Earth Dimension powers. It was nice that the spines of Salgotha were that golden yeah. yellow. Little golden lightning spikes like needles. I love that. That was really cool. More of that. I would like to see like some some greens. Give me give me some purples. Shoot yeah. a trans flag at somebody. I don't care. Like <laughs> It's just the pink beams look a little bit too much like telekinesis and telepathy. I really would like to see different visualizations than the, the pink laser blasts or blue laser blasts, however they are. 
Oh, and I did really like the visualization of the mindless ones that we saw in here. It kind of took that simple design and made it a little, a little bit scarier, a little bit more like Lost in Space with the robot kind of thing. They're definitely not as cute. Yeah, they look like the new Lost in Space, especially. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, now like honestly, with the power signature, I would love to see more purples and blacks. Because it's that's a very much a signature of her home dimension. Like most of her outfits had those purple and blacks with, you know, with like silver. Like, so give me, I'm not saying all the time, but like, like when she's truly pissed off or when she is channeling dark dimension, I would love to see the purple and blacks come out. Cause that would just, it would harken back to her origination. I would wish Marvel would like take this across the board. I do love all of the vibrant purples and black tones in Death Row. I like the effect of how like the stone angel is moving its head to talk to him and the skull and the ravens. Like death is every voice around this this doesn't always translate as well on a comic page as it does in like a movie or in a real life situation where you can hear the direction you know mm-hmm. but like i think this works really well on the comic page it sequentially makes me feel like death is all around me and talking from a bunch of like spooky objects and it was it was like really effectively spooky mm-hmm. you're totally right about the purples and those kind of the dark midnightish tones those work so damn well and it it really works well because the only color other than in like the purples the blacks and like the little bits of red is that gold mask so it you really pick up on the face i love those little pops by the end of this book the art is so clicking so well in like all regards the colors the pencils the inks it feels like maybe there was some rush on the earlier parts but it just it feels like it's really working now and i'm actually excited for the next issue which is something i don't know if i could have actually said about yeah. a lot of these dr strange in his silver zaddy look pretty hot hot with the purple eyes too yeah he's doing a real i am a fan insert character (laughs) he looks like fandral the dashing that's exactly Mm. like right that's fandral that's not dr strange why are we assuming it's dr strange it's fandral (laughs) there's one panel where he's leaving where his cloak it turns into birds yes turns into ravens it's such a cool effect. Mm-hmm. I, I loved that. It was very Morgan Le Fay. It reminded me of the Morgan from Wicked and the Divine by Kieran Gillen, the Morgan character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, because the yeah the Morgans, their the signature is ravens. So and we see those ravens again in the Death Realm. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like they were taking him back to where he's supposed to be because he's supposed to be reporting into death. Yeah, and they are psychopomps, right? I mean, yeah, those and whippoorwills and ravens are all psychopomps from carrying souls from the land of the dead to the land of the living so i think that's a really excellent artistic choice Mm -hmm. my final thoughts on this is i like how it's it's progressed started very shaky for me this was like a whole mini series like i couldn't say it was great overall but i think that uh, knowing jen mckay has always has these great plans for the future i think some of this is going to be set up for future things and hopefully we do get to see it all play out i can't wait to see what happens from here actually and i am excited for the next issue i want to see it be a little bit more magical and fantastical it's got a lot more of that street level hero feel and like i kind of wanted to go a little bit bigger yeah i agree well this series is ongoing baby so we're gonna we're gonna see what happens there's going to be a dr strange miniseries but i believe it takes place at some time in the past so we are we're looking at a quite a long time with uh clea as the titular strange Hey, 
everybody. Welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Crotus Gaming Classics, and now Verse X, where we take a look at two titles that fit part of the current landscape of the X-Men line and see how they come together to paint that picture, or if they leave a little bit of room for that X factor that we're always looking for. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survive this experience just like the X-Men did, traversing in subnautic hyperpressure in order to infiltrate the Vex rookery hatchery factory thingy. Oh man, and I am so excited to talk about how the X-Men just kind of refused to die. That means we're here to talk about Axe Judgment Day tie-ins, X-Force number 30, and X-Men number 13. What we're going to be doing here today today is a little bit different. While we're not exactly pitting these titles against each other, we're going to be taking a look at how these two books come together to either support each other as part of the X line or paint sort of the diverse picture that comes together to create the many pieces that create the tapestry of X-Men or if perhaps the two books leave us wanting whether it's separately or together. X-Men number 30 is by Benjamin Percy, Robert Gill, Guru FX with letters by Joe Caramagna, while X-Men number 13 is brought to us by Jerry Dugan, C.F. Vila, Matt Mila, and letters by Clayton Cowles. So I think the first thing that I want to bring up more than anything is the nature of Axe Judgment Day and what we're doing here because we're doing something really daring with this telling a very specific moment over a really long time. I feel like we've sort of gotten used to Ten of Swords style crossovers and Empire style crossovers where I just sort of get this feeling that stuff's going to run forever. There's no real, oh, it's been weeks. There's no tightness to the timeline. But here, there is a tight timeline. And I was wondering how you guys are feeling about journeying into this same five, ten minutes over and over again for the next several months. At this point, with this particular part of the story, with the Hex coming to Krakoa, it has gone on for me a bit long. We got some very cool coverage of this in Immortal. We expanded on it in Judgment Day in in a way that I wouldn't say that I dislike, but I felt there that I probably was capping off my interest in that particular battle. And I guess what I didn't really consider was that they left it in a way that it didn't really have a decisive victory such that I should have expected that we weren't done. But when we got into this and we were still in kind of this same moment fighting these really cool eternal biblical kaiju machine creatures, I we had just gotten to a point now where I'm ready to move to another beat. I don't know that this moment inflated and examined in every way possible from every angle adding new details is doing me any favors in terms of my interest in what's going on here especially when we now have introduced the element of the celestial and the judgment in some certain medias and some forms of storytelling i actually don't mind seeing the same time frame over from a different perspective i think that could be quite interesting especially if the difference is quite substantial and you're gathering new information that you didn't have from one perspective to another. However, I don't know if it fully works for this moment because this moment isn't particularly nuanced in this way of did we really need both Icarus and the Eternals perspective as well as the X-Men perspective? We probably could have gotten by just with the X-Men's perspective on this. There's nothing wrong with it per se, but I do think this form of storytelling works better when there's something, dare I say, more interesting for lack of a better phrasing because both sides to the story are telling the 
the exact same thing. There's nothing new gathered from either side. So I think using this story element here, I, I think there might have been a better bridge connector, something else for these two stories in this moment that could have been done for this issue. I very much see that as well. This reminds me of Uncanny X-Men 466 to 468, Gray's End, in which there is an issue where like every member of the Gray family is killed in 27 seconds in like real time by the Shi'ar Death Commandos. There's something really intriguing about that perspective and that methodology of telling this specific story, you know, dialing into uh, kind of like live real time horror. But I feel as though I don't want all of these books to get involved. You know, it's I very much like what you said, Jonah, that it, it doesn't need to be Icarus and the X-Men. And the fact that Death to Mutants came out today and it was basically Eternals number 15. You know, it wasn't really about Death to the Mutants. It was really a clever way for Marvel to get people to buy the Eternals. I don't know. I also kind of question what these books are doing in Judgment Day. Of, to take a look at the setup for these books, we have Benjamin Percy on X-Force, who, let's be honest, perhaps Benjamin Percy is more revered for his Wolverine than his X-Force. And we have Jerry Duggan, who is on X-Men, but he's probably better liked for his Marauders. How do you guys feel about that this is two creators that perhaps don't get their strongest reviews on these two titles, which are maybe treated a bit more as their flagships? They may not get their strongest critical reviews, but they seem to have gotten a very strong fan response which I have to remind myself that while a lot of the people that I talk with and do segments with on this podcast kind of are in my camp of not really vibing with either book in particular I do notice a lot of times that when you go online um, you see a lot of people putting both of those books at the top of their list I have some grander thoughts about sort of X-Men and who it appeals to and who it doesn't, but there is a contingent of fandom at the very least that seems to be really responding to both X-Men and X-Force think they're very cool. The initial CIA metaphor of X-Force is a really interesting idea and there are still elements of that that are really going strong. These two books are not really two that I really vibe with but more than that I worry about them in this crossover because I think both authors are pretty in their lane when they are driving the car themselves and you know I'm not saying that they can't do teamwork well but I have not seen them both juggle a lot of big crossover stuff where they are not in charge I find it pretty interesting that there's a footnote in this issue of X-Force Logan is just like I gave everything for this island and it's like see X-Lives of Wolverine which I just thought was a really interesting editor's note because it's such a vague statement from Logan in the first place that you don't actually need to see X-Lives of Wolverine to get any further background on that. Why are we calling it X-Lives of Wolverine? Isn't it X-Lives, X-Deaths of Wolverine? Like My other question was like, is it just X-Lives? Did I miss something? Like, what are you trying to refer to here? It just To me, it felt very much like I also do crossover events. Duggan is a tougher case for me because, of course, the X-Men are going to be in Avengers X-Men Eternals. We just came off of a 12-issue run of a team that then ended with the Hellfire Gala and we elected a new team. We have not seen that team work together in any capacity 
capacity or made really any note about the fact that that team now is the X-Men and we find them just jumping into this battle. Ew. For me, not how I want to start off the team reset. Oftentimes, the critical response can be different than the fan response. There are times where something is critically acclaimed and people just don't like it and there are times where it's critically unacclaimed but fans ravish and eat it up and I think that's at the end of the day. The goal of anything should be creating good media and good content. I look at the team of X-Force and I look at the team of X-Men and I'm like, well, what's the difference still? I still don't quite understand what the difference is and I think part of that is we're now bleeding into territory where both teams are kind of co-opting the jobs of one another. It just feels like there's not a lot of room to have both titles. Now, in the beginning, I think that there was plenty of room for these two books to exist because they were covering two different things. The X-Men book wasn't covering the team of X-Men like it normally does. Originally, during this Krakoan era, I should say, was covering the lives of people on Krakoa and how they're reacting and readjusting to what they're going through in this new change of paradise. Whereas the X-Force felt actually like CIA because there felt like there were infiltration missions, there was backstabbing, there was all this drama with Beast doing shit behind people's back and them being like, yeah, I guess unfortunately it's fine. And it feels like now there's no separation between what the X-Force team is doing and what the X-Men team have to do. Their jobs are now crossing in a way where they're both too big. And I think that's problem letter A. And problem B is I think it's a lot of stretching thin where it feels like there's just a little bit too many main cast characters for anybody to feel like they're getting anything worthwhile in terms of character development. I think when I look at comics, I think, okay, in this arc that you're going to give me, whether it's a single one shot within this title, whether it's across two or three issues or across this multiple event, what is the character development and character growth going to be for these characters going through it? Some characters will get plenty of it, some won't, and that's absolutely fine. That's how that works, especially with a large roster like the X-Men. But I don't understand how this event is meant to tie in and promote any form of character growth, whether it's for the Krakoans in general or individual characters that we see a lot of. And the more we're discussing this, the more I feel the functional design of this project, this verse X idea, is really coming into play because, Jonah, one of my next questions was about the nature of cast as it relates to these two books. I want to point out that X-Force has had a predominantly stable, if far too large to appear with any regularity, sort of cast. Essentially, they have run a pretty consistent gamut of Wolverine, Quentin, Choir, Domino, Beast. I would note that Colossus was a more regular fixture and has since left. Forge was a more regular fixture and he found his way over to X-Men. But the cast of X-Force hasn't changed as much as I feel like. Other Benjamin Percy projects have found themselves in X-Force. Whether it's My Precious Manslaughter, who everyone knows I love Manslaughter way too much. But I genuinely never thought Craven was that great a villain. I love Craven's first hunt, but I think it's one of those things where like a story makes him seem cooler than he is. And sometimes when they're like, oh, Craven's hunting the next big game, Craven's hunting Celestials. I'm like, why? Why is how is Craven a villain for X Force and Thor? Because he was a villain in Valkyrie. Anyway, Craven aside, no, actually, Craven at the center. Craven and Deadpool are kind of a bridge too many for me in X Force. Well, conversely, I am without words at I don't know how to interact with this new X-Men roster. I feel like I never got to know the original team. I don't think Sink or Cyclops really had a whole lot of meat this issue. I feel like it was just kind of Ileana and Forge being
being zingy. How do you guys feel about the nature of cast instability or overstability as it would relate to X-Men and X-Force respectively and how that affects your ability to dial into the story each month? For X-Force at least, I think because the roster has been stable for about 31 issues, it's really easier to digest and see the collective character arcs that people have been going through during this time that that's its advantage over X-Men. X-Force is Craven the most well-defined nuanced character in the Marvelverse? Absolutely not. Craven is not taking down Exodus anytime soon. There, there's nothing within this character's repertoire that would ever make him be able to extensively hunt down mutants. That part felt contrived. At this point, I think Craven and Deadpool should just date because they keep uh, ending up in these wacky scenarios where they find one another. So I don't know, make them date at this point. Add Cable and I would subscribe to that OnlyFans. I think a lot of people would. I think part of the idea is just the cool image of Craven on the island hunting, quote, animals because everything on the island is weird and different and, you know, you can put him in, quote, pelts, which are just people's bodies, which is a horrible graphic and I don't know why it's cover art for anything. It's one of those things where if you pitch it for me for five seconds, I'm going to be like, yeah, I see it. And then all of the questions that we are now talking about come up and I go, ew, those are all good points. Like, I didn't really buy it when he was in Devil's Reign because it's like, that's who you're sending after Electra. Yeah, that too, again, too far. That one I can give a little bit of credit for because by the end, he was like, just kidding, I was distracting you. I pulled a prank. Orcus better be like, we just wanted to prank X-Force by throwing this guy in their way so they forgot to watch the Eternals. Anything other than that, I get it. He's a hunter. They're in like a jungle island rainforest type environment. It's cool to see him among the trees, but that's not a basis for a story, is it? I, I mean, it can be, but maybe not right now and maybe not during this event. Maybe yeah. a one shot or two issues. At a different point in time, it could probably work. We're also coming off of Deadpool's main series where Craven made an appearance where he was a monster hunter for a little while. And that felt like a logical next step where if he hunted down all these rare and mythical beasts, well, he would hunt monsters down. That would be the next step for him. And at least in my mind, as this person who's supposed to be the ultimate game hunter who's trying to basically destroy and mount and kill the rarest finds, I, I don't see how, one, he's going back to just hunting regular animals, just chilling out in the Arctic. And two, I don't really see the mutants as the next step beyond that. But regardless of that, when it comes to X-Men, it's really tricky to evaluate everything that's going on because the title itself has been rebooted. And now we have this team that I don't really think had enough time together as a team where we got individual stories and we saw individual growth, maybe. That's also questionable because Jean's story was about her dealing with Nightmare and there was no character growth in that. That was just Jean saying, I'm cool. You're, you have no power over me. Get out of here, horseman. And she like kicked his horse's ass and he just sped off into the night. Dream stabby Jean. She comes with all the things she needs to stab at your nightmares and steal the spotlight every issue except the issue about her. Uh, yeah, for real. But then we get, you talked about how you felt that Cyclops and Sync didn't have a lot to do with this issue. The one character I was most interested in seeing how they're going to interact with this new era and this new team, Firestar, literally got like two lines of dialogue. And I think there's a wealth of character narrative to have with Firestar in this team for not only newer readers to the X-Men, but just in general to have this character interact with mutants where her mutant status has been questioned and weaponized against her for not being, you know, staunch pro-mutant or X-Men. And it just feels like a missed opportunity that this issue, her first issue on the team, there's nothing there for her. And I thought that was a kind of a big disappointment and letdown for me. There is a problem I am 
having with timeline. So I know timing in comics is very sliding scale and fluctuating, but I I do have to wonder, how is the current Ileana story going over on New Mutants correlating to this? That story over in New Mutants has really nothing to do with the events or anything that's going on and Judgment. And that's absolutely fine. I don't think we need more books covering this crossover. I'm with you because I'm also really flustered how all of this growth for Maddie, all of this growth for Maddie Pryor, we are seconds from closing the boob window on Maddie Pryor and getting a fully realized, fully flesh-covered character. And she's going to be the bad guy of a Spider-Man series in a minute? What? But even regardless of that, how is Ileana going through these adventures in limbo while simultaneously upholding her duties as, you know, a character on the X-Men team? That it's a pick where, sure, I love Ileana and I love seeing her in things, but I don't fully understand how this character can actually be in two places at once. She's not Wolverine. X-Force having a stable roster, I think, worked for it for, I'll be generous and say, let's say, two 12-issue runs. So 24 issues, that's totally fine. We added kind of question mark Omega Red and Deadpool but that's really probationary and just started when I'm gonna chip away at everybody until what we're left with is this is another Wolverine book it's a stable team but it's really just stable because nobody else actually matters it's just there for Wolverine and when Wolverine walks away and all these people come together you realize okay we got one little domino story but then nothing after that the beast sage like wrestling for control thing is something that we get nods and references to but nothing has happened in this many issues and just feels like at this point it really needs to not just because it's not enough character development for either person but because Beast can't keep going like this I would rather not retread storylines or add in threats that don't seem particularly appealing Black Tom is more of a prop like it's like Sex in the City the fifth girl is Manhattan like Black Tom is just like kind of Krakoa as a person in the mix but not ever really getting like Black Tom would be better off right now in Legion of X, Juggernaut. He kind of comes in and he's like, I'm the fifth girl. Ha. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But I don't think X-Force is the book for him to be flashing that status around without it actually meaning anything. At this point, I would like for X-Force to be doing something radically different. And, you know, unlike the flagship X-Men book, this X-Force is a book that I might have bought a radical teen change in the middle of a crossover such that we really don't even get to discuss it. It just kind of has to happen but then that would be like they need to be doing CIA stuff not whatever is happening here which just again I don't not really clear on how this is a judgment day issue all the way back to X-Men yeah completely unstable team lineup everything that I already said and everybody else has said really covers it this just wasn't the way to start with this team I'll even be forgiving and say the 12 issues wasn't enough for me personally I don't think it did enough for any particular character but it was experimental this idea of electing a team, you know, and electing a new one every year. Everything that is story driven also touches on editorial stuff. Like again, having a Hellfire Gala year after the last one when a year can't have passed in comic book time. But, you know, I can be forgiving of everything except for this being the issue that the team is introduced because that's that's a thing in X-Men books. And we need to be able to chew on it a little bit, especially in a time where there's an election. So there's a component to which like some of these people maybe aren't the people we would think should be on the team, Firestar. And then some of the people, it just, it's weird that 
that they're there, like Forge nominating Havoc kind of out of spite and then Havoc getting on the team. I don't know. There's too much in the mix for it just to be like, and then they were all the team and now the team is fighting. One of the central tenets of the problem with comics for me is we feel hyper beholden to outdated modus where like people can't let go of say Scott, Gene, and Logan running the X-Men. So, you know, of course Logan is running X-Force and has a good rapport with Scott and Gene who are in many ways disconnected from the X-Men as a nation on Krakoa and instead run their own unique X-Men thing, right? Because the Treehouse X-Men, they're not really the Krakoan X-Men. Let's, you know, keep those two things separate. And I think Ileana and Forge are meant to represent Wolverine in X-Men. And I think Sage is meant to represent Scott and Jean over in X-Force in a way that I wonder the value of keeping these power dynamics in play and how they benefit the teams. I do feel as though I would have rather this been X-Men number one. It sounds dumb, but it just doesn't feel like the 13th issue of something I started last year. And I definitely didn't get a comic year's worth of stories out of X-Men 1 through 12, you know, Treehouse X-Men volume. I do think that the nature of the changing cast makes things very difficult. On top of that, like by the time we return to any like normal plot for the X-Men, like by the time we move on from Judgment Day, it's going to be November, December. So we will really have as readers moved on from the point of wanting to sit and be introduced to these people and start something new. If we try and pick up old threads that came from the first 12 issues of X-Men, they're going to seem really distant and foreign and confusing. Like we kind of have to because we have Stasis and Orcus and I just don't see any way to return to that in a way that feels organic after introducing a new team with no runway. The other thing that I'm starting to wonder about is our relationship with these characters as it relates to the visual dynamic that supports them. For instance, I feel as though between Joshua Kassara and Robert Gill, we've had a predominantly consistent visual tone. Not that Robert Gill has not really informed his own style on the pages of X-Force, but in the name of consistency for the book, it seems as though Robert Gill has really taken a lot of cues from the setup work by Joshua Kassara and is executing it with his own style and flair in a really very consistent way. Whereas even when the art team on X-Men has been consistent, because X-Men has covered so many things in so many settings and done so many kind of random things like game world and also everything going on with the human Orcus invasion and all of the time we spent getting to know everything with the Sinister clone. I kind of find myself feeling like I don't know what this X-Men book is supposed to look like. And I wonder how that relates to our ability to dial into the title. I think for me that goes back to needing a reset issue or a a literal reset. We either needed an issue one or issue 13 needed to be okay, we're all here. New artist on the book. Let's establish that visually things are going to look a little different. Team-wise, dynamics are going to be kind of different and we're just going to do the best we can as the new team. And then when we pick up this battle, it all kind of makes sense that we're where we are and, you know, Ilyana is making very crazy eyes a lot of the time that don't look like anything Pepe Larraz would do. That's the runway that I'm talking about that this team needed to get off the ground as the X-Men team and without it, yeah, I think we're a little lost. That is 
is something that, you know, resetting to number one can fix pretty easily. The art has kind of been a non-factor and a non-player. I truly don't know if I have any strong feelings either way. I don't think it looks bad. I'm not really being blown away with the art. It looks like comic art to me. I don't know if there's room for a really experimental or really big artist for this in the sense of, and when I say big artist, I mean the sense of somebody who's trying, whose art style pushes artistic boundaries in a way that's like, this is very different from what you would normally see in comics. I think both art on both issues is very safe of, this is what modern comics look like, this is what you're going to get, and you're going to enjoy it. And I do, but I don't think that these titles really have room for somebody who's trying to be pushing boundaries, experimental, doing whatever, because I think there's a lot more emphasis on the story than there is on the art. And I think that I think that both books are also really focused on the recent past as a way to examine the present. X-Force was so consumed with the nature of the relationship between Wolverine and Quentin Quire, whereas I felt very much like X-Men was about the nature of the relationship with the X-Men and the world at large. Both of these stories very much source from the recent material that we'd been talking about, but both books sort of broke from that. This Craven Deadpool story is a very big detour from the Wolverine Quentin Quire thing that was overwhelming the pages of X-Force. And I don't mean overwhelming in necessarily even a bad way because I'm, you know, a huge Quentin Quire like apologist and mega fan and I'm a big fan of the character. Like, you know, it's one of the things that makes me annoying. So I understand that for most people, it was probably a little too much Quentin, but now there's no Quentin, but we can't stop talking about him. When I take a look at Axe Judgment Day, X, when I take a look at X-Men and the fact that it's a tie-in to Axe Judgment Day, one of the things that stands out to me is I can't help but notice the characters that aren't there. And when I think about how both books are reactive to their recent past, one of the things that I wonder is, are these books, by virtue of being 30 issues in, and in some ways, while this X-Men is only 13 issues in, it's had so many one-shots and tie-in pieces, it feels like it's deeper in than it is. I wonder if perhaps there is something to the Marvel Machine's reimagining of comics as cycling off after X amount of issues. It seems a little extreme, but is 12 issues with a reset at 13 too late? To, now I'm fucking Carrie. I can't help but wonder, is 12 issues too much to find that X factor? I don't think it has to be. I think it is a confluence of circumstances. I feel I can see a logical conclusion to the five issues of Knights of X that we're getting, and I am okay with that. Although I love the book, I would be happy for it to continue. I feel like I see how we have a tight five and how it might make sense to restart for whatever reason you might want to do it. Same thing with the X-Men. You know, we there were early on when we were looking at it, we were talking about, is this book going to be done at like nine issues? What are we getting here? And I think 12 was a little less than I might have liked, but it's a it's a year. It's a solid time to tell stories. I I think that if this is the way that Marvel wants to do things, I, I don't have a problem with it in and of itself. It's how you go about uh, dealing with what it means to keep relaunching books over and over again and having those relaunches have big effects in the world of the characters overall, how changes to shipping can derail timeframes and maybe make it impossible to properly time things the way that they need to be for like big crossover events. But, you know, I've never been somebody, even though I'm somebody who grew up with comics in the 90s that, you know, is aware of a time when the X-Men was 
was X-Men, Uncanny X-Men was in the hundreds, when the adjectiveless X-Men book was in the hundreds. I, I'm not precious about legacy numbering or anything. We can keep relaunching this until we're at hundreds of volumes of 12 issues of X-Men, but there's got to be something in play that makes it make sense every time a book relaunches. Jonah, how do you feel about the state of numbering on these titles? Do you feel like X-Men would have benefited from a new number one here? Or do you feel that X-Force at 30 issues is more what should be the standard bearer for the Marvel line? Personally, I think it should really kind of be following suit way of X-Force and New Mutants. I think it just makes sense for these titles, especially because these are, and I say this for, this makes more sense for X-Force and New Mutants for what I'm about to say, but it's following kind of the exact same cast and it's still a linear story that you can follow through the history of the past two years of what's been going on. X-Men is a little bit more dicier in that sense, but I don't think a new number one here would have done well. I actually think it would have uh, hampered the success of this title because then it feels like, oh, okay, are we getting a new, it's just renumbering after every time we get a new team. I think that's a little bit more confusing for people who are starting in comics than it is for people who've been doing this for years and kind of understand, okay, I know what I need to do. I know what I need to either buy online or get from my pull box in my local comic shop. But if it, this was renumbered to a number one, I really do think that would be a very big hamper. I really do think it would be a disservice to the story, especially because this is a direct continuation. When we got a different X-Men number one comparative to the one we got way at the beginning of the Hoxpox era, that made sense because, okay, these two titles, even though they're in the same name, are kind of covering two different things. But this title is still covering the exact same thing, the X-Men team, even if we have a new cast of characters, where I don't think it actually makes sense to renumber this. You know, I feel as though it's kind of hard to not split the difference. I don't need X-Force to renumber because in so many ways, we're still doing the same sort of thing, which in and of itself is kind of a frustration. I bought into what Percy was selling me in the beginning. I think it took two X-Lies and X-Death for me to realize like, oh, this dude really just loves writing Wolverine and isn't maybe as interested in that other stuff that he started with. X-Force was a lot about Wolverine and Quentin, where X-Men was really about the team and how it relates to the world. And I think there are there's a reverse to that where the kind of background subplot less important thing but that was still a key part of X-Men was about Sync and maybe Cyclops and Sync and really about how Sync was integrating back into being a superhero and being an X-Person and over in X-Force the kind of background thing was how X-Force relates to the world and the fact that it's the mutant CIA and the fact that Beast is using X-Force to enact an agenda that is his own and that I don't think a lot of people would approve of that's a big deal storyline not just that one of the original five x-men is going off a an evil deep end for which he actually has an alternate universe counterpart that we've all met who shows that it's really dangerous when beast goes bad and starts deciding that what he thinks is best is just going to be what's done but that relationship of this wet works team to all of the other real and fictional nations and and, you know, now as we pull in the Avengers and the Eternals, the other people in play, it's kind of important that X-Force is a, a stone causing ripples in the world. And I think that really for 30 issues is something that the book says this is happening, but we can't really delve too far into the ramifications of it. And it constantly is like, just wait, this thing just had like Terra Verde happened, so it's going to come back and like, just wait, Russia happened and it's going to come back. But then we 
we keep going somewhere else and as we're getting on to three years worth of issues, if it's going to be three to four years of issues and it culminates in resolving this big storyline, I guess I'll be okay with it at that point. But it is a very long run, the middle of which I don't know justified waiting all this time. And I think maybe took some of the most powerful options when it comes to exploring stories in X-Force off the table in favor of Wolverine and the X-Force on top of another Wolverine book already. And I have to question where both books are going, with Judgment Day clearly being about this very specific amount of time. I have to assume that we're going to see these titles stay in this holding pattern. It is of great contrast to a title that, Jonah, you brought up earlier, New Mutants, which, between Rod Race's beautiful art, which is a little bit more like what you were saying, once again, Jonah, when you said, like, you know, what about much more daring art? Yeah, you know, that's a little bit more like the art we're seeing over on New Mutants. It's meant that the books come out a little bit slower because, you know what, like I said in a recent segment, you know, really good art takes really long. You got to give it the time and you can't force these artists to churn these books out faster than they physically can. So to take it a step further, one of the things that I engage with very directly is that this New Mutants story, it's come out a little bit slower than the other X titles in the last few months, also due to shipping delays. So it feels like it's already happened. And I wonder how many of these books can afford us how much introspective, deep one-on-one time with these characters. I agree, there wasn't enough Firestar in this issue. I maybe don't know that I need Firestar on the book called X-Men, but hey, you know what? Now Firestar is like Wolverine and has been on X-Men and Avengers. Like Storm, you know, there's a number of characters that that's a pretty cool club. Good job, girl. You get it. But do I need her in this moment or do I want Firestar? That's a kind of tough question. I mean, this is the X-Men team and this is the X-Men book. So if I start to get into questions of like, do I need or want any of these people? Then I'm really questioning the team as a whole, which I have done a lot and have bitched and complained because this is not the roster I would have chosen. I mean, I feel really similarly about Iceman, honestly. And one of the things, Nico, that you and I have talked about is Iceman power creep and how that plays into a lot of things about the character overall. And is there any more stellar example than Iceman turning himself into a giant kaiju and just punching the hex as the fighting strategy. Similarly, Forge, his like first shining moment on the team is to be sitting on the beach while all of his teammates are fighting, getting ready to fire a gun, fire it, and then going, that's all I got. Which to me, just when I sit and think about the creative process, I just wonder, once you wrote that and look back at it, didn't you think to yourself, oh shit, I put this dude on the team who literally just goes, I'm a one trick pony and granted he comes back later and he's got more going on but that was my big concern about Forge is like he's an awesome tech guy he'd be great for X-Force but seeing him on the X-Men team in this era where we have so many options and Forge isn't really a great pull in terms of lot that would draw him into the story all of these people are not the ones that I would have picked and then to have them in this moment that kind of shows me like this is why I'm kind of ambivalent about them it is 
not the finest hour for Judgment Day's X-Men component. Jonah, how about you? How do you feel about the nature of further exploring this moment over and over again with these characters and how that might shake out over the course of the next few months? For this to work well, I think there needs to be a situation specifically where the Eternals are going to react differently than the X-Men are going to react to it. And I don't mind if we're going to get a lot more of these moments, but I do think that it's going to start feeling a little bit tiring because it's just going to be rehashing story elements where we already know how it ends. And I do think that can be a little bit boring. There's nothing wrong with a storytelling of you knowing what the ending is. There are plenty of shows that do well when they do it. For a recent example, I just finished the first season of Only Murders in the Building. And it makes sense that the end of the series is the beginning. And it works there because you're building up to it what's going on because you don't know what's going to happen. But here, when we already know the result, you have to find a way to make the other side of it very interesting. And I don't really think that's been done here, but I do think it can be interesting. But like I said, there needs to be a situation where the two sides and the perspectives, whether multiple perspectives, doesn't have to be just two, needs to come to the same point from different angles. And I think this came from the same angle. So it's kind of stepping on one another. But ultimately, I do think it can work. So I want to just comment on the, you know, mention of Iceman power creep. I am not the world's biggest Iceman fan. I don't like really, you know, ever connect with the character so much. I didn't connect with Iceman overtly before coming out. And while queerness can be something that is very central to your ability to connect with a character when you are also queer, it's an alienating thing to see no queer characters in anything. It just doesn't mean that you have to like every queer character because you're queer. And so like, it's not like I think Iceman is the devil, but he's just definitely not a character I've ever really resonated with. So sometimes I wonder if my resist, well, and you know, I didn't love the nature of the coming out and I didn't love the nature of the corporate handling of the coming out transition into Iceman as an adult becoming an openly queer man. I really appreciate a lot of the work done by the incredible queer artists that have come since. And I think, you know, there's a really cool legacy, a really strong current of the gay that runs through Iceman these days. But Iceman cannot be a catch-all because everybody wants a Magneto or a Thor or a Storm in every book. And I feel we're losing sight of who Iceman is. And maybe that's the point. Maybe Iceman is, you know, super duper rocking that HGH trend life and he's got the bigness. So he's just a different guy now. But I don't find that guy any more likable. And so maybe in that way, he's still really true to Iceman. But I think that Iceman, as the sort of cocky bastard he's become, would do great on X-Force. I think Iceman is definitely a character I would just shoop over to X-Force. And weird as it sounds, I would probably trade Sage to the X-Men. I think she could do a whole lot more helping me to understand where the Treehouse X-Men are able to do their most good, kind of gives them a centralized person leading the whole thing. Are there any ideas that you guys could see that maybe exist in one title but could benefit another title? 
I think Iceman would do great in X-Force. I think that's a great call, Nico. I mentioned that I would throw Forge onto X-Force. The only reason I wouldn't throw Sage on to the X-Men is because she's got to run X-Force when Beast goes down. I might throw Black Tom over in the role that you're talking about for Sage to be kind of a coordinator. But then we start getting into interesting ideas about like, I love the idea of Bobby going over to X-Force, but then Bobby's going to be horrified by some of the stuff that current X-Force does and that past incarnations have done and I maybe that storyline might not be the one that I'm interested in so much but maybe one where Bobby has to go on to X-Force because X-Force can't be the horrible American CIA for Krakoa it's got to be a new version of an intelligence organization for a nation that is going to do things radically differently his relationship with Emma his relationship with Christian I, I can see Bobby being a terrible fit for a mutant CIA as it as we think of it right now and then a really good one for an aspirational mutant CIA that we want it to be and that being his journey and his struggle to figure out how to be the person that can be a voice of authority and can be somebody who says we're not going to cross this line regardless of how it's going to affect our nation we're just going to have to figure out how to be better I think that's a really good story for Bobby in terms of even if he has power creep and can you know rise to any battle occasion here's an example of where he is still kind of a boy and kind of has to grow within a book which sometimes i think that character growth gets lost for him because it's like ah our amazing original five x-men gay character he can do anything to take it all the way back i would love to see x-force sort of starting to relate to the world in the way that cyclops felt that this team of x-men had to do and i would love to see this team of X-Men decide to take what they have done a step further and maybe not just show the world that like mutants are here to do good and be part of the world but also the other side of things which is that mutants are not here to be threatened and treated like shit and that's not a threat to the humans that they're saying that to that is hey humans this is why you're going to see an explosion in the sky in the second because Orcus keeps trying to kill us like I would love to see them go the next level to be the flagship team of X-Men I mean, you just made the ultimate case for the fact that uh, Iceman is a Dave Matthews band gay. Oh, 100%. Totally. What a Dave Matthews band gay. He, you know, thinks he's really in touch with things because his favorite artist is from South Africa. I <laughs> David Matthewson, as his real fans call him. I think the X-Men current team right now is missing a martial character. When you had Rogue, you had somebody who was the muscle. And there's nobody who's currently really the muscle on the team. I think we should not to steal one of size characters, but like bring on over weaponless Sven. Put her on this team. Yeah, you know, we had some brilliant coverage on Legion of X recently. Really so enamored of getting to edit that piece. What a great time. And I would just love to see everybody from Legion of X go somewhere. I'm such a big Kane guy. And the fact that, with you know, we have the waiting room. We've done all of this stuff that Sammy isn't back. I'm going to bring this up for the rest of time. No, the you should keep Sammy the back. Yeah, I, I, want, I want Sammy all the fuck right you know there's things that happen where you have to ask yourself is this really a statement by the creator now i don't know chuck austin personally and i'm not here to pass any judgment on them as a person but it's hard not to notice that critically one of the only well received things about the chuck austin x-men run whether it was the original uncanny run that picked up on the tail end of joe casey's run or the pivot over to adjectiveless x-men which followed the conversion back of new x-men chuck austin was 
also responsible for the final two issues of New X-Men, New X-Men 155 and 156, Bright New Morning, which introduced the Kresh, which is ultimately the thing that it is rewritten that Cassandra Nova is in, which facilitates Astonishing X-Men. So Chuck Austin is the person that it seems like Marvel was like, hey, you're going to do these retcons for us to make this other thing possible. And then those two issues are stuck in with the sort of packaging at that point that made it seem like it was part of the end of Planet X thing. And then Chuck Austin was kind of summarily dismissed uh, very shortly into the reload and with his final pages killed off Sammy the Fish Boy and wrote out Annie and Carter. It's Gazacanian. I believe you. And her super powerful Franklin Richards son that has never come back to destroy the universe. I also forget that she was with Alex for a minute. Like, I have blocked so much of that run out for my own good, but it just wasn't the run for me. But so to get back to the whole thing, killing off Sammy always felt like a statement of divorce from the X titles. Like Chuck Austin said, you know what? You're telling me not to let the screen door hit me on the way out. Fucking calamari, bitches. And then just Mike dropped his way out. And that it was at the hands of Black Tom, a character who I won't let you come for. And like, I don't know. I would really like to see Sammy back. He's a character that I very much care about, very obviously. And I really think there's room for him on Krakoa. I think Annalie would be a really good mentor for him. You know, another, I guess we'll just call him like Slimy Boys, right? Kind of like another Slimy Boy who could, you know, be a good friend to him. I don't know. I just miss Sammy. Good mutant. Bring him back. I feel like that is entirely possible within Cy Spurrier's run, but that also points to Black Tom. There's not a ton of stories for Black Tom that you would revisit for anybody. He was just kind of a villain. And then like he started to get more emotionally complex when we started to realize what the deal was with Juggernaut and Juggernaut kind of wanted to be better. And it's that or Teresa and Sean Cassidy, like Banshee and Siren and Black Tom have figured their stuff out in Unlimited, not even in X-Force. To give Black Tom even a moment to appeal to the five and say, hey, could you do me this personal favor on the pages of X-Force? Like maybe it's an issue where they're like, we can do you the favor, but we need X-Force to do one thing for us. Something, give him a storyline of some kind because he is one of very few people at that table in this issue and glaringly he has had almost nothing to do besides be the cameras and you know talk weird. Ultimately I think that Sammy would be a very interesting plot point for a Black Tom story. It would just be a way to give Black Tom a story. X-Force is a really small team and like I said it just is so Wolverine centric. It's Wolverine and Quentin for at most were the two characters that you got but there's something for all all these other people. So I feel like if this is going to keep going, that's a perfect example of a story that would be great for one of the characters to kind of expand things. More than anything, I look forward to seeing these two books, X-Men and X-Force, further expand the line. If there's something that I can say that I get from X-Men that I don't get from any other title, it's a sort of sense of must-see TV grandeur. There's a vibe that, love it or hate it, hate it or love it, there is a water cooler effect on X-Men. And something that I get from X-Force that I feel like I perhaps don't get anywhere else is where as X-Men, as I, I agree with Jonah early on in the episode, X-Force feels like it's lost what makes it unique because so many other titles have the characters making terrible moral decisions. X-Men has started to be a lot more like, oh, we have to do this thing in secret. <sighs> and, you know, what I get from X-Force is no apology. I just get wet works. I don't get I now have to feel bad about it. And that's kind of a weird position to always put me in. That's 
the point of the book and then I have to feel bad about reading it. I appreciate that X-Force isn't putting me there. How about you guys? I think I agree with you. X-Force being a commentary about this super secret black ops group making questionably moral decisions that ultimately would either hinder or help the fate of Krakoa was interesting at first. But when everybody's making bad decisions and we're all just kind of collectively slapping our foreheads saying, why would you do this? This is what the kids would say is a bad move. I don't know if watching it happen in the X-Force anymore really makes it that more entertaining. But I do think the book has room to evolve and grow. I love both of these books conceptually. And I think for different reasons, it's time for both of them to have a big reset. Unfortunately, in the case of X-Men, we are past that point. And I now just hope that with the lessons we learned for the first 12 issues of the original team, we move a little quicker on to whatever sort of exposition work we're going to do in understanding the characters on this team. If we're going to do another Hellfire Gala next year, I really hope at 24 issues we can have a bit of a shakeup, maybe an annual, some kind of capstone to just give us a breather moment before we go on to whatever X-Men is going to be. In terms of X-Force, I really love the concepts here still. And I love all of these characters. I wouldn't even mind continuing to see them all on the team. I'm very happy that we now have Deadpool and Omega Red, as silly as they can be sometimes. I would like to either add more people or really do a hard shift on some of these stories or just shake the entire thing up if we have to. But we have meandered a little bit. We've allowed Wolverine to really call all of the shots for this particular corner. It's time to do something really different for X-Force if we want to make this idea of the mutant intelligence agency and the moral arbiters of the mutant nation be as complex as I think it really ought to be. 